Well, hey, good morning. I want to welcome you to Meadowland Church. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you. Hey, as we get started this morning, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles. Um, we're going to go through a lot of Scripture this morning. All that Scripture will be provided for you on the screen behind us. Um, this is a, a little bit different this morning, so if you're new or you're visiting, I, I would uh, love for you to know that we don't always do church this way. Um, today we're finishing up um, our series called Ask Anything, and what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks is we've been answering questions that people have submitted to us. Now, now before we dive into that whole thing, here's, here's what I want you to know. Each week, when we hand out that communication card for you, there's a place for you to write things down. It's like prayer requests. If you have things going on in your life that you would like us to be praying for, it would be our joy to pray for you. Um, we would love to, for you to provide us with your information so we knew how to stay in uh, contact with you and, and, and let you know what's going on here at Meadowland Church. Uh, there's also a place where you can write down questions. And so just because the Ask Anything series is ending, I don't want you to think, hey, we can't ask questions anymore. Uh, every time you get that communication card, you have the opportunity uh, to let us know how you're doing, to update your information so we know how to touch base with you, but also to ask questions. If there's something that you're struggling with, if there's something that you're thinking about or you need uh, somebody to walk alongside you on your journey, we would love the opportunity to do that. So please, please, please fill that thing out. And if you have questions, comments, even snide remarks, you can put that on there and we'll, we'll get it into the hands of the right people. Now, I know you've already heard about this. So I'm going to hit on this real quick and then kind of move on. Uh, tonight, 6 o'clock, McHenry West Campus, the high school, we're having a big celebration service that we're participating with other like-minded churches in our area. Um, we've been doing the, the canned good food drive now for four weeks. And so this will be the culmination. We'll bring all that food together, and then we will celebrate what God has done, and all that food will then be distributed to local food pantries, and we're going to just spend some time worshiping Jesus tonight. So we would love to see you, 6 p.m., McHenry West High School. There'll be a few hundred people worshiping Jesus. We would love for you to be a part of that. I'm also just really, really want, want to encourage you, over the next couple days, we've got some real incredible opportunities for you to take next steps on your spiritual journey. Uh, in fact, today, directly after this service, if you're uh, new to Meadowland, if you've been around for a while, or maybe this is your first Sunday here and you'd like to get to know more about Meadowland Church, what's going on here, what we're all about, and how you could get plugged in. Uh, directly after this service is what we call a welcome to Meadowland. It's, it's a time to get together. There'll be some snacks. There'll be some leaders there. Uh, just a chance for you to ask questions, meet people just like you on their journey, and really figure out if this is the right place for you to be, and also begin to build some connections and some relationships. So we'd love to see you um, right after this service, upstairs in the conference room. It'll be great. Uh, also this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, we've got spiritual growth classes going on. I think Monday is the getting equipped or the getting started class. Then we have the getting equipped class. And then I'm teaching the membership class on Thursday. We'd love for you to be a part of that. And there's all kinds of information about that in your bulletin this morning. But please it, it, pick the class that works best for you and go to it. They're completely free. They'll be a lot of fun. And if you register in advance, we'll have free childcare available for you. So we'd love, 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 love the opportunity to help you take that next step on your journey. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive in this morning, and we're going to ask, we're going to ask and answer five questions. Now, here's the deal. We're going to move fast, 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 and fast, and hopefully we'll be done in about two hours, okay? 
because here's, we, the greeters have locked the doors, okay? Your kids will be taken care of. We'll bring food in if the sun goes down, okay? So here's, here's the thing. These are the five questions. I just want to show you where we're going this morning. And all of these are connected, which is why we saved them all for the same week. The first question is this, how are we saved? Like, how do we know if we've really been saved? We, we received questions that said, if I wanted to be saved, how do I do that? And people ask questions even like, are there steps to being saved? And so we're going to answer the question, what does it mean or how do you get saved? The second question is this, does a loving God send people to hell? Does a loving God really send people to hell? And we're going to talk about that this morning. Um, the third one is, do we go directly to heaven or to hell? Had all kinds of questions about what happens once we die. Do we go to purgatory? Do we hang out for a while? Do we get to come back and haunt people? Like, what's up with that? And so we're going to ask, we're going to answer that question. The fourth one is, as a Christian, as a believer, is it okay to be cremated? Okay? Going to have a lot of fun with that. Number five, what is the second coming of Christ and is it biblical? What is the second coming of Christ? Is it biblical? All kinds of questions in there. Like, is Jesus really coming back? And when he comes back, what's going to take place? And when will he come back? And so we're going to try to wrap this all up and whatnot. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. To be completely fair and totally honest, each of these questions could be like a four-week sermon series on their own, okay? Like, people have written volumes of books just trying to answer these questions. I'm going to try to do it in the next two hours, okay? And so we're going to... I'm, kind of joking about the two-hour thing. And so um, we're going to dive in. So before we do that, it just makes sense for us to stop and pray and ask God to do something. I'm also going to apologize, okay, because we're going to move really quick. I'm going to give you a ton of scripture this morning, a ton of scripture. Usually we try to take one scripture and focus on that scripture. So that's kind of how we do things around here. But here's, here's my desire. I don't want you to leave here this morning and go, oh, that pastor had some really interesting thoughts on these questions. What I really want for you is to have God's word in front of you. I want you to see scripture. I want you to wrestle with scripture. I want you to read scripture on your own. And so we'll have all of them available on the screen so you don't have to worry about going all over the place. I would encourage you to take notes, whether you just write down the references so you can go home and read some of these, revisit some of these. Some of your small groups uh, talk about the sermons and so you can have the opportunity to kind of wrestle with some of these. But we're going to dive in this morning and answer these questions and we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, because I think Paul starts talking about at least four of these in 1 Corinthians 15. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to work among us. Would you join me in that prayer? Father God, we come before you this morning. And God, the reason we pause and come before you in prayer is because ultimately what we need this morning, God, is you. God, nothing significant, nothing eternal, nothing lasting will take place here this morning unless you show up unless you work, unless it's your voice that we hear. So God, I surrender myself and we surrender ourselves to you this morning. And God, we ask that you would help us to hear you. God, that you would make your word clear to us this morning. God, I pray that above all things in this place that we would just glorify the name of Jesus and lift his name on high. Because God, we believe that according to your word that you in your great love and mercy sent your son Jesus, who is both your son both sinless and innocent, to die for us so that we could have salvation and would never have to face your wrath. And so above all names, it's his name that we praise and it's his name that we worship. 
And God, we ask that you would be glorified, that you would be pleased, and that you would work in a powerful way this morning. And God, I pray that we, as we wrestle with your word this morning, would respond to you in a way that would glorify you. God, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word this morning, but that we would be both hearers and doers of your word. So God, we ask you to show up in a significant way. And all together, we pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. I want to start in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning because I think Paul hits on some of these. And you're going to see that as we read different scriptures, we're going to kind of read a whole bunch of scriptures this morning. I think, at least I hope you'll see that a lot of these issues are interwoven together. When we talk about life, death, eternity, the return of Christ, that it's really all about Jesus and his glory and his will being done. And I think Paul makes a really strong case in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that as we receive the answers to these questions, that it should do something in our lives. It should actually motivate us. It should encourage us. It should cause us to dig into our faith and take action on our beliefs. This is what he says, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So I think this is where Paul kind of gives us as a launching point, as a starting point. He says, listen, all of our lives is about Jesus. That if we want to understand salvation, that it's about Jesus because we get victory in Christ and Christ alone. And that victory will lead to some stuff when we die, and it will lead to eternity. And not only that, but he's like, listen, I want to tell you this mystery that at some point, the imperishable has to meet with the perishable. The perishable has to put on the imperishable, and the mortal has to put on the immortal because flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. That God is going to do something mysterious and miraculous to us when he returns a second time. In fact, Paul uses this entire scripture, this entire thought, all these answers, and he says, listen, as you receive these, it should motivate you. Like, he actually finishes with a charge. He goes, listen, because you understand this, because you'll get these answers, it should cause you to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work, because you would understand the mysteries of some things that people who don't know Jesus really don't understand. And so I want to unpack some of these this morning. We start with the first question. It's this. How are we saved? How are we saved? You could ask this question all kinds of different ways. Uh, some people ask the question, how do I know if I'm saved? Or if I wanted to lead somebody to Jesus, how would I know if it had happened? Uh, people ask the question, did I miss a step in becoming saved? So I want to start at the simplest level, the simplest level 
of how are we saved or what does Scripture say about salvation. We just read 1 Corinthians 15, and this is part of what Paul says in that 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is kind of our launching point. This is what Paul says. It's all about Jesus. That if we want victory over sin, we want victory over death, then that only comes through Jesus. It's through Christ alone. There's no other way. There's no option B. There's no other plan. There's not a co-op option to this thing. That if you desire to be saved, it's through Christ and Christ alone. And so you might ask the question, well, listen, I, I, I recognize that I've got some sin in my life. I've done some stuff. And I think I'm desiring Jesus. I have this appetite. I have this desire that I want to repent of sin, that I've recognized some stuff in my life. And I don't want to go that way, but I want Jesus. How would I do that? Well, there's other scriptures. Like Ephesians chapter 2 through 8 through 10 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. This is Paul again. He goes, listen, if you truly want to be saved, this is what you have to understand. It's by grace. This is a gift from God. That God prepared this for you. He made this available to you. And the way that he made this available to you is that he sent his son, Jesus. And there's no other way. And it's not about my works. It's not about your works. It's not about how good I am. It's not about how good you are. It's about faith. It's about putting our trust in Jesus. It's about putting our confidence in Jesus. It's about putting all of our lives in Jesus. In fact, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, sometimes, every now and then, I get some critical feedback on myself or maybe us as a church. And I got some of that recently. I had this conversation, and somebody said, hey, I, I, you know, we're having this conversation. He said, well, here's the thing. Here's what I think about you, and here's what I think about your church. And I was like, great. And he said, I think you preach too simple of a gospel, and I think your church makes it far too easy for people to become saved. And I, I kind of laughed, which you shouldn't do if someone's giving you criticism that they believe, because then they don't think you're taking them seriously. And so I laughed, and he said, do you think that's funny? I said, I don't think it's funny. I just don't know what the other option is, preaching too complex of a gospel and make it really, really hard for people to get saved. Like, I don't see that in Scripture either. So we had this whole conversation, and I'm going to give you a piece of this conversation because I was asked the question, what do you think someone has to believe for them to be saved? And so this is the deal. I think if you believe these things, I think that you're saved. I think if you truly put your trust and your confidence and you take action on these things, I think God has done a work in you to help you understand these things so that you can put your hope and your trust in your life in these things. And here's the first one. I think if you're saved, you have to start here. You have to believe that you are a sinner. You have to believe that. Like the gospel starts with the idea that you and I are guilty of sin. Because here's the thing. Here's the secret, okay? If you and I don't have sin in our lives, then what do we need saved from? But the core of the gospel is that you and I have sinned. Listen, if you've ever told a lie, if 
you've ever said a word of gossip, if you've ever had a conversation with somebody and the thoughts in your head were completely different than what you said, and up here was R-rated and what you said here was PG-13 and you thought that was victory, that was probably sin. If you've ever had a lustful thought about somebody who's not your spouse, if you've ever taken the Lord's name in vain, if you've ever coveted stuff that wasn't yours, if you've ever chosen your way over God's way, that's sin. See, somewhere in just those few things I threw out, you went, yep, 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 yep. In fact, most of you went, all ten. I mean, we're, we're guilty. And what Scripture says is that because you and I are guilty of sin, that sin separates us from God. And not only does it separate us from God, but it makes us guilty and deserving of the wrath of God. And see, all of a sudden that puts you and that puts me in a position where we have an incredible problem that we have to deal with. As if it's true that I'm guilty of sin, then it's also true that I'm separated from God and that I am fully, 100% deserving of his wrath. And see, the question that every single one of us has to ask then is, what am I going to do about that? And see, as we begin to dig into God's word, you go, what could I do? Could I give enough money? Could I be so generous that I could somehow purchase my salvation? No, that won't work. Well, could I be so good? Like, could I help so many old ladies across the road? And could I sell so many Girl Scout cookies? And could I just be the nicest person on the planet? No, that, that won't do it either. You go, wait, 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 here's what I'll do. I'll become so religious that one day when I stand before God, I'll be, God, I know that I sin, but listen, I have been so religious. I went to so many church services, and I got so involved, and every time the church doors were open, I were there. Well, Paul says that he is from a pedigree like none other. And then when it comes to religious acts, no one can even compare to him. And then he says this, it's all rubbish. And if you've been around here long enough, you know that he uses the word scubula. And if you want to know what scubula is, you can ask one of our elders, because we just don't have the time to go into it this morning. But it's something your dog does in the backyard. And anyway, he says it's scubula. And he goes, listen, it's not about religion. And he goes, then what can I do? What can I possibly do about this separation that occurs? What could I possibly do about the wrath of God? See, that's the beauty in the gospel. Because it starts believing that I'm a sinner, and then it goes to the fact that if I'm a sinner, then I'm also guilty and deserving of God's wrath, which leads to the third thing, that God, in his loving mercy, sent his son Jesus, who was both sinless and fully God, into our world to pay the ransom for our sins. And that Jesus even though he was innocent, would give himself up, that he would suffer and die on a cross. And that as he suffered on the cross, what the scripture says is that he literally took your place and he took my place, that he suffered what you and I deserve to suffer, that he died the way that you and I deserve to die, that he experienced the wrath of God, the wrath of God that you and I really deserve and are guilty of. And that he took your sin in that moment, and I'm not exactly sure how all this works, I just trust God and his sovereignty, that somehow Jesus took all your sins, even the ones you haven't committed yet today, and he took them from you. And that he died on the cross 
a sinner's death. And that he was dead and that he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. And this is so beautiful because it's not just that Jesus has washed us from our sin. It's not just that he has saved us from our sin. That in his resurrection, in his glory, in his righteousness, in his victory, that he would give us his righteousness. So that I'm not just forgiven, but that when God looks at you and when God looks at me as saved people, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And see, if you believe those things, and by believe, I mean you put your trust in them, you put your faith in them, you put your life in them, then I think you're probably saved. Because that's what Scripture says, if we would believe in our hearts that he is the Lord, that he's done these things, that we would confess with our mouth. And you go, well, what do I do next? Well, I think the biblical language is say, once you believe that, that you would abide in him, that you would put your life in him and that you would learn to know him more and love him more and that you would spend your life, that every time you learned a new scripture, the next question would be is how do I become obedient to this scripture? That you and I are not just called to know scriptures, that we're called to live lives of obedience to him who saved us in his great love and his great mercy. And see, for many of us, our stories that you heard the gospel over and over and over again, And then at one point, there was that one conversation, there was that one Bible study, there was that one youth group meeting, there was that one Sunday school teacher, there was that one time next to your bed with your parents, we went, you know what? Like, this isn't just a story, this isn't just somebody else's thing, this is my thing. And I think that this is real, that I have sin in my life, I think I'm probably guilty of this stuff, and you know what? I'm sick of that. Like, I I feel bad about that. And you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. I want to get rid of that stuff. And what I think I need is Jesus. And I think that I I love him and that I want to be loved by him and forgiven by him. I want to give myself to him because I see what he's already done for me. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. Is it 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on a cross and rose again, he said, listen, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. I love you, I love you. I love you. And then when we hear his word, when we hear his voice, the biblical language is we repent of our sin and we accept what's already been done for us. That it's not that, Jesus, will you forgive me? It's that he has forgiven me. And I realize that. And now I put my life in him and my trust in him. And scripture says that when we repent of our sin, When we confess Jesus as Lord, that's our moment of salvation. And so you go, listen, if you did those things, and it's different for a lot of people. I mean, at Meadowland Church, you've heard every story from, hey, I hit bottom of a drug addiction to I was six years old next to my bed at night. And I go, God and his great sovereignty calls us in ways that will respond to him. And for some it was a class, for some it was a sermon, for some it was your parents, for some it was a friend, for some it was youth group, for some it was a completely different situation. And if you were here today and you said, listen, I want to be saved by Jesus, I would just walk you through these things. I'd say, do you believe that you're a sinner, that you're guilty of sin? If you said yes. I'd say, do you understand that your sin separates you from God and because of that sin you are guilty of his wrath. I said, yeah, I go, hey, would you want to do something about that? I'm going to open up the Bible and I just read for you the verses that say that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the way, he is the truth, 
that he is alive. That if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is Lord, that that's how we are saved. See, I think that's how it happens. And I don't think it has to be any more complicated than that. I don't think it has to be any simpler than that. And I would say this, no one gets saved unless God is working inside of them. See, some people ask this next question, then they go, listen, okay, so I get that. So you can be saved if you put your trust in him, if you believe in him, if you accept what he's already done for you, if you make yourself his by repenting of your sin. But then how in the world does a loving God send someone to hell? And I think that's an interesting question because that's a really loaded question. Can we just agree to that? That's like your kids coming to you right before their bedtime and saying, Mom, Dad, can I have a, some ice cream? And you're like, well, no, it's bedtime. Like, and we all know so if you give kids like, lots of sugar, like, they have to expend that and it gets kind of crazy. So if your kids are like, hey, can I have ice cream? And you're like, no, they're like, a loving parent would never say no. How could a loving parent send their kid to bed with no ice cream? And you're like, well, here's the assumption that if I say no to you, that somehow I don't love you. So that's a really loaded question. And I answer this question this time. Every time I get this question, I always answer it this way. I think a loving God gives people what they've always wanted. I think a loving God gives people what they've always wanted. See, I think according to Scripture, God pursues us. I mean, Paul says things like, none of us are without excuse. That as you see creation, as you see the sunrise and the sunset, if you see the animals, as you see creation, that creation announces one thing. There is a creator. And that somehow God works in that, that when we see his creation, we know that there's a creator. Therefore, no one was without excuse. There's verses like Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you would hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, I think we have a God that pursues us. I think we have a God that relentlessly pursues us, that he comes after us and he gives us opportunities to see him. That he gives us opportunities to recognize him for who he is. That he gives us opportunities to hear the gospel and respond to it. And sometimes, some people just say no. They go, listen, I don't want to live that way. I don't really believe I'm a sinner. I'm a good person. I don't think I need that. I think I would rather have a lot of fun living my way than living that way. See, I think there becomes this moment where we get what we've always wanted. See, here's the thing. The statistics haven't changed. The death rate is 100%. Every single one of us will die. And when you and I die, we will go to either heaven or hell. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure. There's only two places, heaven and hell. And the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. And see, I think that there's that day where you stand before holy, holy, holy God, and because he loves you, he says, listen, I've come after you, I've given you opportunities, and now I'm just going to give you for eternity, what you've always wanted. A life away from me, a life without me, a life of disbelief and disobedience, and that's hell. See, I think a loving God gives people what they've always wanted. And see, I, I think the reality of heaven and the reality of hell should really, really motivate us as believers. 
Like, I, I think as we talk about God's wrath, and as we talk about heaven and hell, it should cause a, a sense of urgency inside of us. That we come in here on a weekly basis to worship and, and get fed and be with one another, and hopefully you're a part of a home group that you get out of a row and you get into a circle to do life with people and pursue Jesus. But people, all that's for is to build you up and to feed you and to get you excited and to supplement for you, to live out your mission, to live for God's glory wherever he strategically placed you. And that means every neighbor, every coworker, every friend, every family member, every person you pass and have relationship with, there's an opportunity for you to share the gospel with that person. Because those people who God has directly placed in your path will go to either heaven or hell. In fact, there's two truths within Scripture that I think should motivate us to be passionate about presenting the gospel. Because none of us are guaranteed a tomorrow, and there will come a time when salvation is no longer available. And listen, let me take the pressure off just a little bit. Because I think you should be passionate, and I think you should be having all kinds of conversations. But let me tell you, sometimes the biggest reason we don't have those conversations is because we are fearful that they'll be awkward, that they won't always go our way. And let me tell you, as your pastor, when I have those conversations, they're almost always awkward. I had an email come in this week from somebody who I guess I used to know in high school, and they sent an email, hey, it turns out we both live in Johnsburg, what a small world, hey, See all your posts about Meadowland Church. Thinking about checking out a church. Maybe we'll go to Meadowland. It's right in our neighborhood. What do you love about the church? Now, here's an opportunity, right? But how much do I say to this person that I kind of remember that we've done a couple, like I think we kind of hung out a couple times because we were friends of friends of friends. And like, by the way, during this period, wasn't really saved. Okay? And so I write the first email, delete it. Write the second email, delete it. Write the third email, pray, delete it. And so I have this dilemma. Do I say, I love the church, and by the way, I'm the pastor there, or do I go, surprise, if they come? Just to confess to you, I chose the surprise route, okay? I'm like, they, you might hear, hey, I'm the pastor. They're like, uh-uh, we're not checking that one out. And so I was like, hey, listen, Meadowland Church is awesome. It's a real place, real people, hurting broken people, pursuing Jesus and trying to live for his glory. We have an awesome discipleship pastor. Like, listen, if you want to take spiritual steps on your journey, his name is Steve. I love him. I think you'll love him. Here's his email address. I didn't say anything about me. I'm just like, listen, you'll show up and be like, hey, welcome to Meadowland Church. And if you ever see someone just pass out, you'll go, you must have known Adam before he was saved. They're always awkward. They're always awkward. But they're worth it. Because Scripture says not only are you and I not guaranteed it tomorrow, but our friends, our family, our, our co-workers, our loved ones, none of them are guaranteed it tomorrow either. Paul says this in Psalm chapter 139, 13 through 16. People ask all kinds of questions like this. Do people go to hell if they're killed in a tragic accident? Do people go to heaven or hell if they're in a, a tragedy or, or some sort of tragic event? And here's, here's the thing you've got to know. Here's the thing. God, in his sovereignty, in his great wisdom, is never surprised by a funeral. Okay, God's never received a funeral notice and gone, did you know that was going to happen? Oh, I didn't see that one coming. Did you, you didn't see that one coming? Did you, Jesus, you see that one coming? He's never done that before. Because this is what David says in Psalm chapter 139. 
For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intrinsically woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David said, listen, I realize there's something significant about what happens in a mother's womb, and he makes it personal. He says, God, I understand that when I was in there, you were forming me. Even though that was a secret place, God, you were there, and you were molding me, and you were shaping me, and even then, I wasn't hidden from you. And he makes this revelation. He says, I realize that you numbered my days. That somehow in your book, you wrote down my name and you wrote, this is how many days David gets. I'm thinking that same book is your name with how many days you get. And there's your friend's name, your family's name, your coworker's name, your loved one's name, but everybody's days are numbered. And here's the thing, not one of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And see, so many of us are holding out on having that conversation. Like so many of us are holding out about saying, listen, I know that you don't know Jesus, and I just want an opportunity to share what I believe. Can I just at least share my testimony with you? And you're going, I'll do it another time because it might be awkward. Here's the thing. You may never get the opportunity. And so I would just give you, I would just implore you to consider this. Which is worse, taking the shot at it and have it being awkward or never taking it at all and then having to wonder what happened to them and where were they with Jesus? Here's another thing that I think should motivate us. So according to Scripture, there will come a time when salvation will no longer be available. Like This is a time that people can know Jesus and become saved, but what Scripture says is when Jesus comes again, that those who are saved are saved, and those who are not are not. So we have an incredible opportunity, because this is what Jesus says. He says, but concerning the day and the hour that no one knows... Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and they were drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all the way. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding the mill, one will be taken and one will left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. See, so many of us take that verse and we so personalize it. We go, listen, that means that, means that I have to be aware and I have to be ready at all times because Jesus could always come back and he could be here at any minute. And listen, I've heard people preach sermons on this. Of whenever you're about to make a decision, ask yourself, if Jesus came back right now, would he be happy about what he found me doing? And I think that's great. But the other thing that Jesus says is, listen, Understand that when I come, it's kind of like what happened with Noah and the flood. Some were saved and some were not. 
And people were going about eating and drinking and having parties and wedding ceremonies, and that was awesome until the waters came and washed them all away. Jesus goes, be awake, stay alert, don't fall asleep, don't get lazy. I'm coming again. And those who were saved will be taken up, and those who are not saved will not be taken up. And I think you and I should be passionate and relentless about taking the gospel from this place into our communities, into the world, into the workplace. And listen, I know, I know it's awkward. I know you're worried about what people will think. But what greater gift, what greater thing than to tell somebody this is the truth about Jesus and to know that they may never have to experience the wrath of God because you were willing to get a little bit awkward and share with them the good news about Jesus. Because this is the third question people ask. What happens to us when we die? Like, what's up with that? And I think the author of Hebrews gives us a pretty good indication in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 to 28. Now, here's what, here's what I think. I think the author of Hebrews is being incredibly, incredibly selective and intentional in their wording here. He says, and just as it is appointed for a man to die once. Okay, he goes, listen, there's something significant. This is God-ordained. This is his plan. 100% stats, you will die. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I think he's being really intentional. I think this is a timeline here. This isn't a, hey, once you die, you roam the earth and get to see your loved ones one more time. It's not what he's saying. Once you die, you go to judgment. Other biblical language talks about in the twinkling of an eye, in the spark of an eye, that when you and I die, listen, don't miss this, we are not bodies that have a soul. We are soul that has bodies. So when our physical body dies, the author of Hebrews says, is our soul goes and stands before God. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See how these things are so woven? Salvation, death, what happens after death, and the second coming. I mean, we keep hitting all these things in these scriptures. So when you die, when I die, immediately, when we flatline, when the doctor comes in and says they're not here anymore, that quick, we're with Jesus in heaven. Now here's the thing, to be judged. And according to Scripture, there's two types of judgment. I want to talk about these real quick. There's two types of judgment. The first one is this. There's the great white throne of judgment. Great white throne of judgment. This is where people go to be judged for their sins. When you stand before God, the great white throne, these are for people who were never saved, for people who did it their own way and never were redeemed and glorified and made new by Jesus. And in that moment, God judges them according to their works, their actions, their thoughts, and their deeds. There's not another chance for salvation. These people are doomed and will experience God's wrath. That it's this point that they would receive what I think they've always desired, life apart from God. So this is that final verdict. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And God says, hell. Now, there's another type of judgment, which is called the judgment seat 
of Christ. This is where believers are judged. You can read about this 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. That because if you're saved by Jesus, you've, all, you've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been bought with a price, but you also have the righteousness of Jesus. Here's the thing. There's no sin for you to be judged by. Scripture says it's been thrown as far as the east is from the west. And so when you stand before a holy, holy God, there's no sin to judge. Jesus has taken care of that for you on the cross. And when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ in you. And so what you and I are judged for as believers is what did we do with that salvation? How did we respond to Jesus? How did we live our lives? How did we continually say yes to him and put what his word said into action in our lives? This is where Paul refers to all throughout Scripture, saying things like, we would receive crowns of glory. That we would receive crowns. That we would be, he, he talks about it this way, that you should run the race to cross the finish line so that you could receive the prize. And what Scripture tells us is that these prizes, these crowns that we would receive for our acts, it only makes sense this way is that because they were because we were saved, because Jesus saved us, that because his spirit lived inside of us, that because we were his, we were motivated to do these things, that we received these things, and then we lay them back down at his feet, and we go, Jesus, this was never about me. This was never about my good works. This was always about you. So even these crowns, I lay at your feet. Now, other people, I think, will barely get through, or if you're Irish, you'll barley get through, Okay? <laughs> Okay? If you're not Irish, you didn't get that. If you were, you did. I think, because people ask this question, if I received Jesus or if somebody received Jesus and they died instantly, would they go to heaven? I think the answer is yeah. And I think you get that right out of the Gospels. Jesus hanging on the cross, surrounded by two thieves. The, the one thief responds to Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. If you take your Bible literally, he didn't have time to do any good works. He didn't respond to Jesus and hold a canned food drive and teach Sunday school. Right? He died on the cross. And Jesus said, hey, you'll be with me in paradise today. And so if you were to receive Jesus today and as you were driving home, if you were in a car accident, if there was a plane crash, if there was a zombie apocalypse... For me, it would be cats with lasers and ammunition. I think that's how I would go. They would surround my car, and I would plead for my life, and they wouldn't give it to me. That even if you had only been a believer for several minutes, you would go to heaven. Because salvation is a gift from God by grace through faith. But at this judgment seat, we'd be judged for our response, the decisions we made, our stewardship, our service, our actions, and our deeds. So this question gets asked in number four. Is it okay for a Christian to be cremated? Now, now here's the thing. My thoughts have changed on this over the years, not biblically, just what I would prefer for myself. Now, the short answer is yes. Like, it's totally fine for you to be cremated, okay? The whole option of what happens to our bodies after we die is really awkward for me and uncomfortable. Like, cremation... Not, not really a big fan. Like, having all kinds of chemicals pumped in my body, getting makeup. Like, I live this long without having to wear makeup, and they're going to put makeup on me. And then, like, I'm going to go on the ground. See, I'm a little claustrophobic. See, I don't even like to think about that, you know? Like, and I know some people donate their bodies to science. And see that? I don't want to be a science project. I survived junior high. 
And now you're going to make me a science prize? So like that whole thing. So here, from a biblical standpoint, can you be cremated? The answer is yes. And you go, give me some scripture for that. Genesis chapter 319, this is part of the curse that Jesus is saying is because of sin, scripture is saying because of sin in your this is going to happen. God says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Most cultures throughout time have cremated bodies. Even in other countries today, it is not the practice to preserve bodies, put them in caskets, and bury them. In fact, even in our nation, having walked alongside a few families that have recently had to have go through the grieving process of losing a loved one, have said that the burial fees are just astronomically expensive versus cremation. That actually, cremation is a much more affordable process for them, and it gives them a few more options, like the spreading the ashes or having the urine and that, that kind of stuff. And so if that's an option you're thinking about, biblically, I don't think there's any reason not to do it. For me, I just kind of feel like, listen, I was saved by Jesus. I'll never have to go to hell. No fiery furnace, but fiery furnace. Like, it's just, I, I don't know. So this is what I've told my wife. I'm going to go first. You decide. I'll be happy. I'll be happy with whatever, Okay. I actually, she's here. I actually, listen, if, listen, some of you have to help me with this, okay? What I really asked for is I wanted some sort of hydraulic lift in my casket, if there is one, so that during the service, at some point, at a, hev- at a heavy moment, like I would kind of and look out at people just for that moment. And then, and then I just want somebody to come up and go, he got the last laugh. That's all I want. And then you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want with me. Like, and, that's, and you go, is there a verse for that? No, there's not. So here's, here's the deal. Now here's the reason. This is the reason so many people are interested in this. We're, we're going to keep plugging along here. It's because many people, the reason you wonder about cremation is, is you're actually wondering about the resurrection of the dead. And so I want to talk about that because that's the next question. What is the second coming of Christ and is it biblical? The answer is, it is biblical. Scripture talks about this all throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 to 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. This is biblical language for die. But we shall all be changed. For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Paul is saying, listen, when Jesus comes back for the second time, the dead will be raised up, and those who are alive will also be raised up. And so the cremation question is this, is, hey, if they're cremated, does this somehow hinder that whole process? And the answer is no. If God could take us from dirt and create us, then he could figure out that whole resurrection piece. I also tell you that throughout the ages, the preservation of bodies hasn't been done the way we do it in America today. So I think you're safe. I want to give you a whole bunch of language in theological terms this morning about the second coming because I want to I equip you and empower you to have these conversations and kind of think about these things for yourself. When we talk about the second coming of Christ, this is the term that we're really we're talking about, and here's the verse that we're using, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So the second coming is in reference to Jesus 
coming back. Now, this is important because Jesus came once. This is that John 1.1, the word became flesh. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, born as a baby in Bethlehem, that he came the first time to deal with sin, went to the cross for your sin, my sin, died on the third day, rose again, and then told, after appearing to all kinds of people, the 500, and he said, listen, I'm going to be with my Father in heaven. In fact, he said, it's to your benefit that I go to be with him, and that way he can send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus ascends, which is called the Great Ascension, that he goes back to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of his Father. And the second coming is that Jesus would leave heaven once again, the second coming, not to deal with sin, but this time to rapture up all his people, which leads us to the next one, rapture. The word rapture is never found in the Bible. It's a theological term. You drive a car, the word car is not in the Bible. So is driving a car unbiblical? No, it's just not talked about, okay? The word rapture is a definition for a happening. I would put it this way. There are so many things that happen in the second coming that we've tried to divide some of the things out and come up with terms for them. Part of the second coming, Jesus comes. That's the second coming in itself. But what also happens is this resurrection of the dead, but also the rapture, the snatching up of believers. And so theologians said, hey, let's define that so people know what we're talking about. They use the word rapture. You see that First Thessalonians chapter 4, 17? Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, as so, oh, so we will always be with the Lord. So Jesus comes again. And there's this rapture piece that takes place, both the living and the dead. Now, there's a third piece. Scripture talks about the tribulation. And this isn't a general term. This is more of a specific term about the great tribulation at the end of the age. And Jesus talks about this in a couple places. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, no. And never will be. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man. Here's where the controversy comes in. This is where the debate and the discussion comes in, I think. Everybody wants to answer the question, when will Christ return? And so everybody wants to try to figure out when will this happen. And I want to give you some of the common views this morning. One of the views is what we call pre-trib or pre-tribulation rapture, which is the view that Christ would return in glory, have the second coming, to quietly snatch up the believers, the church, take us to heaven. And that would happen before the tribulation. Therefore, the church believers would never have to go through tribulation. That's the pre-trib view. There's also the post-trib view. None of these to be confused with the Chicago trib. That's something completely different. Pre-trib, Jesus comes back before the tribulation. Post-trib says, hey, the church will go through tribulation. The believers will go through the period of tribulation. So most people are going to focus on pre-trib and post-trib. It's not that easy because there's this other reference about end times. If you really want to impress your Christian friends, you can say, hey, at church this morning, we talked about eschatology, end times. And they will think you are a superstar Christian because they probably didn't. So here's the deal. The millennium is talked about 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, which is a period of a thousand years where Jesus rules with his believers and Satan and his demons are locked up and have no power. Okay? And that after this millennium, there would appear a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? Now this is where this gets complicated because then there's the pre-millennial view that the second coming of Christ precedes the millennium. Okay? So somehow Jesus would come back now, now, here's the deal. You can be pre- or post-trib on this one. And then does Jesus come back before the millennium? So he comes back before the reign? Or you can have the post-millennial view that says that he'll come back after the millennial. And really what happens is the millennium is actually kind of activated by the success of the gospel. That as, as the church is more and more effective, as the church reaches more and more people, There'll be this long, peaceful period of time that everybody loves Jesus, and it's a, a great time. It's a, a peace time. And then there's this breakout of evil, and then Christ will come to get his victory. There's also the amillennial view, or you can, and this one says that the second coming will usher in the final state of the new heavens and the new earth. It looks something like this that this is all figurative and that you and I right now live in the millennial reign of Christ, okay? That right now Jesus rules, Satan's locked up, and this is kind of a figurative thing and somehow of the only ones I've talked to you about, this is the one that I would be most careful with. Like if this is Satan locked up, I wouldn't want to see him unlocked, okay? I, I think there's plenty of evil in the world and I think we fight a lot of spiritual warfare. So take a deep breath. Here's the question because this is where you're, all, you're going, just tell me what to believe. Here's the deal. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay? Jesus, I think, makes it really clear when he says, I'm coming like a thief in the night. He goes, I'm coming unannounced. And when Jesus says that not even he or the angels know, but only the Father knows, I think we should take his word at that. I think there's some things we are not totally supposed to understand. You go, why? Because God is so big. He is so glorious. And his thoughts are so far above our thoughts that it's okay to have some mystery about him. It's okay to not fully understand everything. In fact, I would say this, and hear me on this. Whether you're a pre-trib or a post-trib or a amillennialist, a premillennialist, you can be any of that. Here's the thing. These things should not divide us. We should not divide relationship over things that are really unclear in Scripture. Like, listen, you and I could be post-trib and pre-trib. You're welcome in my home. I will call you a family member. We can share meals together. We can have a lot of good debate, but it does not affect our relationship. Like, I am unwilling to break relationship over something secondary about when will he return as long as we agree that he's coming back again. So this is what I would, this is what I would suggest. This is just a thought. Hope for pre. Be prepared for post. I mean, I'm just saying. Hope. Hope. That Jesus comes back and says, hey, you don't have to go through all this, but be prepared to suffer. And so I think our prayer should look something like, Jesus, I don't know if I want to go through it, but if you want me to go through the tribulation, if you want me to suffer, then help me to suffer well for your glory. Help me live for you no matter what the climate around me looks like. And I think this is where we land, this whole thing, is that salvation is all about Jesus our lives are about the glory of Jesus. When we die, we gain Jesus. 
And heaven is us with Jesus face to face, basking in his glory. And if you're saved, this should bring you comfort and hope and joy. In fact, Paul says that if we would get this, that we're saved by grace through faith, that because of that, we'll never face the wrath of God, but rather we experience his love, his grace, his mercy. And that when we die, we would go directly before him and experience him and spend eternity with him until one day he would come again and we're somehow part of this glorious return where he's victorious. Paul says, all of that should therefore, my beloved brothers, cause you to be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the labor, the labor of the Lord, is never in vain. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. God, I praise you that you're good. God, this was some heavy lifting this morning. I imagine there's some of us here this morning who our heads hurt. And God, we drank from a fire hydrant of Scripture this morning. And God, I trust that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would make sense of all of this. God, I pray for those that might be in the room who had some of those questions. God, I pray that as their question was talked about this morning, God, that you brought to light your word and your truth. God, I pray that you would help us to respond to you. God, I pray that you would help us to trust in you. God, I pray that you would help us to continually put our trust and our faith and our confidence in you. We might continually take steps of obedience in following you. And God, I also wonder if there may be some here this morning who maybe they heard the gospel this morning in such a way that it made sense. Maybe there's some of us here this morning that deep within us is this desire to turn away sin, to repent of that sin, and to confess Jesus as Lord and to receive salvation that comes from Christ and Christ alone. Because I believe the scriptures when they say that if we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we will be saved and that we could live a life abiding in him and believing in him and growing in him until one day we would stand before him to worship him and bask in his glory. If that's you this morning, I want to give you that opportunity to take that step, to confess Jesus as Lord and repent of that sin. And so what I'd ask you to do just right now with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, I ask you to look up at me. Not because there's anything powerful about looking up at me, but simply because I want to acknowledge that God's working in your heart. And that today as you take that step, I want to be able to walk that journey with you. Okay? Okay? Anybody else? You just pray with me right where you are and you can just say, right where you are, these following things. There's nothing powerful about this prayer other than what takes place in your heart. You can say, Jesus, today, because of your truth, I acknowledge that I am a sinner who deserves God's wrath. But Jesus, I also believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose again on the third day. 
forgiving me of my sins, offering me victory. And I ask that right now, as I confess you as Lord, and I believe you, that you are the Savior of the world. Jesus, I pray that you would make me yours, that you would make me new, that you would remove my sin and give me all your righteousness. Jesus, today as I take a first step, I pray that you would help me to know you more and more, to love you more and more, and to continually put my life in you. Jesus, thank you that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. Today I confess you is mine, and I confess that I am yours. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.